Hello and welcome to the Virtual Clinical Podcast. I'm your host, Nicole Sunderland. This is a spot where nurses share their stories and their experiences to provide mentorship as well as help nurses and soon-to-be nurses just like yourself along the way. I hope you enjoy these episodes. Well, welcome to <laughs> season four, episode one of the Virtual Clinical Podcast. I'm joined today with Jeffrey Roche, who literally messaged me to be a part of this podcast. He is my first non-nurse. So welcome as the first non-nurse on this podcast. <laughs> but he has really important things to share. I'm excited to talk to him about his career path as well, because I think it's valuable for nursing students to kind of hear about what some non-nurses do who are part of leadership and ultimately help direct healthcare decisions and diversity and equity and things like that. And then bring on your important link of, hold on, let me bring it up real quick, Dignity Health Global Education and what you're doing there now. So Jeffrey, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Nicole. Absolutely. So Jeffrey, you started out with your Bachelor of Arts. So I, so disclaimer, I have everybody send me their CV because mm-hmm. it's, it's really important for the podcast to have genuine guests. And I'd like to go through everyone's CV and resume um, just to kind of get a picture of, of what they've gone through. And I think it kind of opens up students' minds a little bit more to different things. So um, so you started out with your Bachelor of Arts in Political Science and Public Management from Moravian. P.S. Best Bookstore is Moravian Bookstore. Yep, I agree. <laughs> uh, what, what made you decide to, to choose Political Science and Public Management as your first choice? Sure. So, you know, it's interesting. So let me just say I am the son of a nurse. Um, And so obviously nursing has been infused in every aspect of my life. And uh, political science, however, I'm really a policy geek. Uh, There's no doubt about it. And and also a geek around advocacy. And so my career really in the sense of political science actually started at the age of 12. And uh, a dear family friend who was very politically active in the Poconos um, started to really say to me, hey, you know, you, you, you just, I just know you have this political bug. I could tell, you know, you love news, you're a news junkie. And um, so, you know, through her and, and even my grandmother, my late grandmother, who spent a lot of time watching CNN with me and, and watching other news channels, uh, would say to me, try it out. You know, you may have a, an interest. And so I went and, and started to attend some uh, political party meetings, functions, ultimately worked on my first campaign at age 12, which was wow. a judicial campaign. And then, you know, just continued. And by age 16, I was actually working for a local state senator part-time while I was still in high school, uh, just doing constituent service, which actually was a great first start of really understanding the art of customer service, uh, because I was helping them with property tax rent rebate, helping them navigate state government, which we all know is a challenge, Mm. um, and also just helping respect them for who they were and understand how I could try to be of help. And then, you know, continued that. And so when I went to college, I knew that was going to be my major. It was really my advisor who added on the public management side is try to try to diversify Jeffrey, as he would always say. And honestly, it was actually in my senior year when I uh, did a full semester long. Uh, Again, my advisor was the one that suggested this because I had done a Capitol Hill internship in in D.C., uh, which was a really interesting internship because it happened right around the time of the start of the great um, challenges with the economy uh, and right around the time when President Obama was, was, was coming into office. And so it was a really interesting experience at that time. And it was then that I actually started a semester long field study at Lehigh Valley Health Network, 
oh, wow. uh, there integrated what was a marketing, public affairs, government affairs department. That's really cool. I, I love that you mentioned just to respect people for who they are, because I think it really helps meet the person at the level of where they want to be met at, right? And I think that's so important for not only policy work, political work, and things like that, but ultimately as nurses, right? You have to meet the patient where they want to be, be met at and kind of ultimately yeah. care for them at that point. Yeah, absolutely. So then you went on to get your master of science in management and leadership and public administration. So I'm assuming that this kind of like path work that you took um, ultimately in DC and these works with senators really ultimately like created this pathway of this management leadership and public admin master of science degree. Am I correct? Yeah, it did. And, and honestly, um, you know, I always tell people and I'm, I'm very transparent for me, it was like, do you get an MBA or do you get, you know, this, this MPA? And um, I was not a finance person. And, and honestly, you know, at the time I was working for Pocono health system where I was for, for nine years. And when I started my master's, um, you know, there was a big push to us to, if we wanted to, you know, get into leadership, we needed to consider a master's. Mm-hmm. And I was already working a lot with our CFO and working a lot with our CEO and others on, on some big time initiatives for our, our community healthcare system. And so I was like, you know what, I'm going to continue the track of what I started and I'll get the, get the MPA. What I liked about it was that it still looked at everything that an MBA would look at. It just didn't have that strong focus on the finance. It was more of the government finance, the public budgeting. And so it was, it served my needs. It just didn't serve necessarily the, the traditional healthcare route that a lot of people will go. Yeah. And you think like a lot of times, even like masters of nursing students have like, like partner programs with like MSN MBA. Yep. I feel like there's none like MSN MPA, which yep. could ultimately be a really good program for someone to offer. Yeah, you know, it's an interesting point you bring up. So I, I teach in, you know, to your point, I actually teach in M- M- MSN MBA, and then it also actually includes CRMP students for Moravian. Yeah. And I teach in, you know, I teach a health admin course around health ethics, uh, regulatory environment, and law. And one of the things that my students always say to me is that we appreciate that you don't teach it just from the MBA lens. Yeah. Um, I teach it from a very interdisciplinary lens, because you're right. So I always tell people, you know, and as you know, when it comes to healthcare, oftentimes the political determinants of health are just as important as the social determinants of health. If we don't look at that full lens and understand how they're all intertwined, we'll never address these pressing healthcare issues. And, you know, we, we, when we look at COVID, we, we see it. We look at any healthcare issue, we see it. And so that's how I try to address it from a, from a very interdisciplinary lens. I'm so glad you brought up the political determinants of health because I have this book right here. I love it. (laughs) Um, it, It's by Daniel Dawes for those listening and you should all purchase it because it really is a nice correlation and parallel to the social determinants of health and really how do we think of the political determinants of health that are probably heavily more in the MPA program than than like an MBA program and even an MSM program. But ultimately, you know, for me, it's shifting my DMP project, which has a lot to do with stroke patients and social determinants and broadband internet and all that crazy stuff. But if you think about the political terms of health and just where things are going nationwide right now, it really opens up your eyes to what we should be doing health policy-wise, even in staff nursing, the whole gamut. So I love that you brought that book up. I love it. Yeah, no. And you know, I have been blessed for uh, the past year and a half to serve under the tutelage of, of Daniel Dawes. Um, and so, you know, I highly recommend the book, but I also recommend individuals follow Daniel, the, the passion, the commitment he has, and, and obviously his mentor, 
is uh, Dr. David Satcher. And okay. so I've served under Daniel's uh, tutelage on the National Health Equity Task Force, which you know, came out of the Morehouse School of Medicine and the CDC Foundation early on in the pandemic, ironically, was actually a, a, an initiative under uh, the former Assistant Secretary of Health, Brett Girard, uh, and the CDC to, to early on look at some of the inequities that we were seeing in COVID. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Daniel being Daniel was asked to take this on. And uh, it is a phenomenal book and the work that's occurred. And I'm sure you're familiar with the Health Equity Tracker uh, that was released under Daniel. And so I was actually fortunate to be part of a, a 50 member group that actually provided guidance and mentorship and support to the development of Google within that tracker. And it was such a phenomenal experience. Was that, was that what you were posting about um, a couple months ago or was this before? Yes. COVID? Yeah, probably. I was like, yeah. I'm really excited. I was like, Oh, that's the coolest thing in the world yeah. to, be, to, to you know, be a part of, but even like try to make things better, you know? Yeah. Yeah, so the health equity tracker released back in May, and so that's probably what you're thinking of. Yes. And um, it it was without question one of the more awe inspiring aspects of my career. Um, you know, we were all there with you know some of the foremost health equity leaders from national organizations everywhere, everything that you could imagine. I mean, I can remember the first meeting that Daniel uh, led us on, and there were leaders literally on the Navajo reservations. Wow. Uh, talking to Love us that. about health equity. And I was like, wow, I have never even, you know, I haven't even thought of this from a health equity lens. And it was really my experience in healthcare as an administrator at a fairly young age uh, during my career at Pocono Health System that introduced me to health equity and really the challenges uh, with health equity. And so it was a, it was kind of a nice bow that was put on through that experience. Yeah. Cause I'm, I'm, I'm looking at, you know, your CV here and where Pocono is in East Stroudsburg. And which is kind of close to Scranton and also close to an area that my family is from, uh, which is Shenandoah, PA. Mm. And there's a really amazing documentary about Shenandoah, Pennsylvania, which is a really small town for those listening, like tiny town. But it has this influx of primarily Hispanic speaking people now that has happened within the last, I think, like 10 years yeah. I mean, this town tra- transitioned from Polish Russian Orthodox mm-hmm. to primarily Hispanic people. And if, and I, I, I found a map one time, I'll have to like link it or post it somewhere that really draws into like, there's a, there's another town somewhere as well, but it's really like this one part of Shenandoah and then another town that has like these primary health, uh, health excuse me, uh, people that speak Spanish only mm-hmm. and coming in droves to those areas. And so that plays a huge part in health equity in these health systems that are up there yep. because Northeast Pennsylvania alone is very sparse. Um, I think Lehigh Valley and perhaps the one in Scranton are the top two and Geisinger are the top three health systems, shall we say, yep. that exist up there. And so this is a huge challenge to meet health equity demands. Yeah, it is. And you're right. I mean, that's exactly the experience that we have in the Poconos. I mean, so I, you know, I grew up in the Poconos. So obviously growing up, I, I had a sense of what was happening. And, you know, ironically, to your point about Shenandoah, I mean, the Poconos, even from the 1960s on, was also going through this tremendous growth and and also diverse growth. And so my own family came from Germany in the 1960s and came into the Poconos. And, um, you know, I can remember as a young kid going to the German American Club, which was in the the Poconos. And um, when I started my career at Pocono, you know, I started to, in the work that I did as a, in community relations and, and really serving uh, the public through our healthcare system, 
started to see the plethora to your point of, you know, different Polish communities. And, and then, you know, the, the Latinx community became a pretty, pretty strong uh, population. And then, you know, same thing was happening with, with even in the, in the um, either the black and the African-American community as well, where they were starting to move and uh, come from New York and New Jersey. And, and, you know, obviously oh, yeah. that was happening, you know, while I was in high school all the way through, you know, through my work. And we were starting to, without question, um, really need to change our healthcare system. Uh, you know, as you know, oftentimes we talk about our healthcare system should look like those that they serve, uh, which can take a lot of hard work, but it's such important work. But even for us, it was more about how do we make sure that all of our clinical workforce, but also our administrators understand what it's like to serve them, mm-hmm. uh, meet them where their needs are at, even yeah. if we can't um, you know, do every aspect of it, but everything from customer service to food uh, to, you know, religious services to whatever it may be, we needed to change our model. And that was something that I was fortunate to serve with a president and CEO who understood that. Um, she was a nurse. And so, you know, I always say, um, I always tell people I was fortunate to work for a, a CEO who was a nurse because she understood from, from the ground up what it, un- what it meant to do bedside care what it meant to address, you know, systemic issues in healthcare, and then what it meant to make decisions that were not only data-based, but also people-based. And so, you know, it was a really through that tutelage as well, where I learned a lot more about healthcare. And it was also through her that she said, hey, get out in the community and figure out how to serve, you know, these diverse, challenging needs. Yeah. I mean, just like, uh, I think Obama did it before he ever came into politics, he was a ground worker. And went door to door and figured out what people needed. And that's what made him so successful in his first campaign for president. Yeah. I forget where I heard that from. It might have been either on the Oprah podcast or Michelle Obama's podcast, one of the podcasts. I don't even know. But he mentioned that. And I, yeah. fe- I thought to myself, wow, like this is kind of like what we need to do every day. It's what nurses do, yeah. every day, right? At yeah. the bedside. Yeah. But ultimately, where health equity policy needs to meet is that groundwork layer. Yeah. Well, and you're right. It's, it, and even more so in healthcare today, what I found, you know, as, as an administrator who literally, Nicole, some of my most fondest memories were actually going into the woods with our CEO and with other members of our team, where we understood what some of the homeless were facing when it came to healthcare. Wow. That's awesome. Why wouldn't they come to Pocono Health System? Yeah. Why wouldn't they go to the VA in Wilkes-Barre when yeah. they were veterans? Yeah. And, you know, we built a, a bridge. Uh, literally for them and figuratively for them, where through those experiences, where we would, you know, literally meet with them and, and, and understand their needs, we would actually bring teams to them. And it's what led, uh, led us to actually establish clinics in the community for them that were walkable, that were on bus routes, we would give them bus tickets, we would do everything that we could to bring care to them. And when they did have to come to the hospital, we established, you know, the mechanisms with care, care coordination and uh, the operational team so that they never had to worry about bills and never had to worry about all these things because we were truly invested in that idea of charity care because in our, in our humble opinion, they gave so much and we needed to give so much back. That's such an important aspect as well. I completely agree. I think there's not enough of what you just described walking into the woods with people, especially the homeless um that kind of you know need to be addressed because you just can't leave them there right you have to meet them where they are and try to get them where they need to go and I think that that's where perhaps California is struggling at right now 
is they're 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 they have money and I believe that they're throwing money in, in things, but they're not actually meeting them and where their needs might be met. But I think that's also a larger issue than just what I'm talking about, right? I'm not in California, but I do believe that you know these things need to happen instead of just pushing people aside and saying, okay, go, j- just go somewhere else, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I'll tell you when it when in my time at Pocono, we faced those issues too, just like every other hospital does, sure. where you know. A homeless may come into the uh, waiting room in the emergency room or a waiting room in the, uh, you know, or our lobby of another part of the hospital, because you know what, it's the only place in the winter that they could get warmth. And I can remember countless conversations with our security director, where he would say, we've got to get them out of here, we've got to get them out of here. And I would say to him, you have a home to go home to every Mm -hmm. night. They don't. And so put on the lens of what it's like to walk in their shoes. Yeah. And you know, sometimes those were tense conversations because the reality of it is I did, you know, I walked with them. I spent time with them. Um, you know, I, I got to know what it was like for them to live in their tents. They showed me their homes. And, you know, our CEO always said to me, and again, you know, she grew up in her healthcare career in New York and New Jersey. And, and prior to coming to Pocono was in Newark Beth. And so, you know, obviously what she saw there was, was an eye-opening experience, but yeah. he would often say to me, Every healthcare leader needs to literally walk the shoes mm. of those dealing with inequities. If they don't, they never will understand what it's like to address those systemic issues within healthcare. And that she was so big, you know, she was big on making us do it. And I appreciate that because it taught me a lot, especially as a white man, you know, yeah. where I know that I'm fortunate. Um, and what I learned in that experience was it's more important than ever that not only I be an advocate, but that if I'm welcomed in as an ally, that I be as loud, diplomatic, obviously, but always think about how I can advocate for them. And I'll give you an experience. Um, when our county, Monroe County at the time, realized how big of an issue homelessness was, when they thought, how are we going to address this? They immediately turned to the healthcare system. And un- unbeknownst to me, our CEO had already talked to the chairman of the board of commissioners and said, well, I got your chairman of the advisory board and I get a call one day and they said, oh, hey, guess what? You're chairing the homeless advisory board. And uh, it's a huge task because you're going to have to bring together these disparate groups that uh, what I learned is they don't all get along, uh, even though in the homeless community, they all have very different views of what they want. And here I was chairing, facilitating. I always called it refereeing. But through the experience, it was pretty powerful because what at least I could get them to agree to was what would equitable health care look like for you? That's awesome. I just remember in my nursing school days when we went to do a project with the homeless and it was underneath this bridge and we met them and gave them meals. And I remember like a lot of, and this was, this was over 15 years ago um, because I, I did nursing school before I went to back to nursing school, but um, we kind of provided them meals and a lot of people didn't understand why we just couldn't get them to a homeless shelter or to, you know, like some sort of restaurant to help them. And it's because they have a sense of community within themselves yep. that, and, and it's like, it, it can be territorial, right? Because they're that this is their little community under said bridge, which is where yep. we were. Yep. And for us to kind of assume that all of these communities are the same is the, is the same thing of thinking that all communities who are not homeless are the same. And I think these, these things really teach us a lot and kind of parallel each other of how do we meet people where they want to be met. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So then you went on to become a 
a vice president of strategic initiatives and the secretary of the college of Lebanon Valley College, which is a cute little college in, in Anvil, PA. What was that experience like? And why did you switch from health center to academic setting? Yeah. So um, to be honest, so we went through a merger process with Lehigh Valley Health Network. And, and uh, as part of that process, there was a management restructuring and uh, practically majority of the directors that were in non-clinical areas uh, of Pocono were, were restructured out, which often, as you know, happens in, in these merger uh, restructuring type of situations. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I had done a lot of work with, with academic institutions during my time at Pocono. And there was a part of me that thought, hmm, you know, could I, could I do similar work in what I did in the role that I had at Pocono, which was a role that I absolutely loved just because of the, the breadth and depth of what I was doing in a college setting. And so, you know, went through a process at Lebanon Valley. I was only there for a year and, and it was really because it was one of those things that I got, you know, another call from Harrisburg University, which is obviously where I was the past two years. Um, and uh, to be honest, what was awesome at Lebanon Valley was it was a, uh, an awesome experience because I learned fairly early on quickly that the, the role of academics to support workforce development and really be there to help healthcare systems, but not just healthcare systems, frankly, everyone that's in the employer market, be able to reskill, upskill, and have the workforce that's required is more important than ever. Yes. And I really, it, it dawned on me that higher ed and anyone that's in the education or training space has done a decent job, but we haven't done a great job. Mm-hmm. And we've got to do a superb job. And it has to be, you know, a hand in glove approach where we're working hand in hand with healthcare, especially to do this. And so I saw that firsthand as as an administrator while I was at Pocono, where we were struggling when it came to nursing care uh, with with new nurses. And frankly, that came because, you know, East Stroudsburg University, great institution, um, had, you know, a different view when it came to some of the student nursing type of expectations. And so we worked with them to redo the curriculum. We worked with them to change some things about the program. And it was very collaborative and very thoughtful. And so, you know, having that experience made me really think, hey, we've got to do this in academic too. And let me bring that experience to help academic do it. That's such a really good point as well. And I think we're seeing that now in terms of barriers to entry and trying to get, you know, more folks that are from everywhere to become nurses or health professionals and how do we reduce those barriers and certainly systemic racism has a huge component of it that we're kind of like just discovering but it's been there all along um in terms of at least from my perspective i'm kind of just discovering what this means and how can i change this Um, for me i've been a part of different things for a couple of years now once i kind of like got the notion of like, I should really teach my students about this because this is a really important, you know, fact. I only get eight to nine of you per semester, but here's what I want to teach you about. And here's how I hope you change the future of this because not everything is equal. The pandemic has certainly highlighted so many inequities of my students, but also my patients and their families. You know, I think of this one patient that I had in terms of speaking to their mother and going on to an iPhone and seeing their home situation because they didn't know about, you know, the the fake backgrounds and you just see this home in disarray and you think to yourself, man, like this has really exposed so many issues. How do we fight for these people and how do we make it fair for everybody to really adjust to this new way of living? Because it's not going anytime soon. How do we really change curriculum for the better? Yeah. Yeah. And make it more real life and practical. Yeah. Um, 
you know, is so important. And that's where I truly, truly feel that academics and healthcare, particularly when it comes to all health sciences programs, but even even the management programs, the leadership programs, um, what I have learned and, and seen firsthand in my academic experience over the past three years, you know, after nine plus years in healthcare, mm-hmm. is that we are not teaching the right material. Mm-mm. We, you know, we're teaching healthcare leadership, healthcare management of, of the past. We're not teaching it to your exact point of what we're truly dealing with. And we're certainly not teaching it for the future. And that has been, you know, an important element that has, has really struck, you know, struck me, but then stuck with me as I now, you know, as I have now taught as well. Um, but also now as I'm working in this innovative transformational fashion to help partner that we do that, we got to, uh, or we'll be in a situation to your point now where we're struggling for workforce. And you know what? Yeah. We're struggling for workforce for a lot of issues, but we're also struggling for workforce because we haven't made it enticing. Uh, we haven't helped them understand how they can help change the world of healthcare. Uh, whether you're clinical or non-clinical, you can do it. And then frankly, we get them in these roles, we get them in, you know, they get their degrees. And I can look back on my own healthcare career and see this. They get hired, they're so excited, and then you know, they meet some administrator who turns them off in a second hmm. uh, just because they're not part of their generation or just because you know they have a different view. And this administrator who's been in healthcare for 30 or 40 years, hmm. frankly, should be preparing to retire, has a very old way of, uh, of thinking. And so yeah. you know, we've got to do so much better, uh, frankly, if we're going to be prepared. Yeah, it was really eye-opening for me in a good way because I love like almost like discovering new treasure, I guess, in a way of when somebody mentioned to me like how this old way of thinking and the old systems are not relevant right now and they're not actually what's going on. And I was like, man, I felt like I was lied to, but really, you know, I'm kind of like, well, then we need to change it. We need to work our ways into changing. If there's anything I know about nursing and healthcare is that we collectively, whether it's good or bad, right? And there's some bad pathways and good pathways have always tried to change it, you know, for what we think is the better. Um, And I think to your point, like, yes, like it just, it, it needs to change because there's not enough of these new minds that are trying to create a more equitable healthcare system and also equitable nursing care. But also the giant thing that I know and like have seen is that there's no mentors, right? People can try to link you up with mentors, but if you have 30 years experience and you have this new Gen Xer come in, you're not going to kind of make a good pair in mentorship, right? And there's not enough Gen Xers in leadership positions right now that can offer that mentorship to new people coming into those roles. Yeah, you're right. And you know what, let me first just say that, you know, at least in my healthcare experience and and also what I see is oftentimes nursing is is without question one of the most innovative areas of our healthcare system. For sure. Um, And I think it it really comes down to that nurses never stop to care for their patients. It doesn't mean what, what that hurdle may be or what that boulder may be, they're gonna continue pushing. And that was always what I saw, you know, particularly in my healthcare leadership experience. But to your point on mentorship, we, you're so spot on. Um, and it's something that I saw too, where, you know, my view of leadership was very different. So when I came into leadership, I had mentors. Mm-hmm. And for me, it was so more, it was so much more important for me to figure out how I could give back to them. And I can remember, you know, we would have employee engagement conversations, as you know, every healthcare system does this, they do their surveys, and then they have team meetings, and they have large meetings. And I can remember my senior vice president said to me, I don't, I don't understand what you're doing, but your engagement scores 
are always through the roof. And I would say, with all due respect, it all stems from you. They're through the roof because you empower me. I empower the team. We work as one. And you know what? Before an issue ever comes up, they're not waiting for a survey to respond. They're bringing it to me. Right. If they want to take on something. I can remember I had an employee who, who I to this day adore. Um, I knew his future wasn't in the role that he was in. I knew his future, frankly, wasn't in our healthcare system. And he jokes about it, but it's I okay. knew, you know, exactly. And I knew he loved thinking differently about health. And so, you know, there was a time where I couldn't go to this meeting with a medical device company. And I said, Tom, you're going. And uh, he was so excited. You know what? At the end of the meeting, he got a job. That's awesome. And, and, you know, when he came to me to share with me that he, that this opportunity was presented, I think in some ways he was a little concerned, like, Hey, you know, is he going to, no, right. you go. Yeah. That's for you. Yeah. You're a young professional. You're determined. You're successful. You go. If I, as your boss can't accept that, I don't belong in leadership. And that's where I think a lot of leaders in healthcare, you know, have to wrap their heads around generations are different. And this is something, you know, I was just saying last week at a conference that we, we just don't understand what it's like in healthcare to manage different generations. Correct. And we've got to, it's the future and we've got to celebrate them, not knock them down. I'm really, I'm tired of hearing so many leaders in healthcare you know, oh, millennials, Gen X, Gen Y, Gen Z, you all do, no, no, celebrate them yeah. because they all contribute to something that could be the most positive movement transformation of your entire healthcare career. Exactly. And I mean, how often do we hear collectively, not, not at one particular place of retention and the same tactics of improving retention must be resilience or must be something else when there's yeah. nothing to do with that at all. Right. Yeah. What I remember from places that I no longer work for, but still love is that the CEO was the, was the best person ever. Yeah. And I, I will never forget. I used to work for Remed and I still talk about it in positive to this day because of how she treated me yeah. as a person. Right. Yeah. I knew she was a CEO. I'm not going to go fight with her to be CEO of this company, but she, she allowed people to offer solutions to her business. Right. And still was like this nice person. And like, you know, if you want to go move on to somewhere else, great. She's still going to be your colleague. And perhaps in the future, you could collaborate with each other. Yep. You know, and I think that's kind of the, more of the mindset that at least successful companies have. And I think that's why a lot of nurses are right now are going to travel nursing. Yep. Because the companies are more inclusive of their ideas and that they don't yep. have to subscribe to like any one type of doctrine yeah. And perhaps they get paid better, right? Yeah. I think a lot of times, you know, if you don't have a like a, a love for the place you're working at, yeah. you don't need to right now. I think the future of nursing, I've said it to a couple of people this week, really is either agency nurses that, ha- that are like travel or whatever, yeah. as well as nursing unions to help really fight for things, get b- better payment and all that stuff. Yeah. Because right now it's a lot of the 30, 40 plus years experience versus the one to two years experience. And we're just, we're out of war. You know? Yeah. Well, and, and what you're speaking to exactly is, is also culture. Mm-hmm. I mean, the idea that we, you know, to your point about retention and, you know, uh, whatever a lot of traditional healthcare leaders view as, you know, HR uh, needs to be the area that is focused on this with the operational leaders. The reality of it is, is that in many, many cases, while I love and respect many of my HR colleagues, 
when it comes to human resources, they're not really focusing on the human aspect. That's where I think, you know, in healthcare overall, you know, we've got to keep everything about humans. And that means diversity, equity, inclusion. And that also means don't use your same old tactics that haven't worked. That means try something new. And you're exactly right. You know what? I applaud those nurses that are going into travel. I applaud young professionals you know, who are thinking of, of different ways that they feel they can add value. What saddens me, though, is that so many individuals who, who I know have the treasures, the talents, the love, the passion that could do so much in healthcare continue to leave just because they're not valued, respected, or appreciated for what they could offer. Yes. That's, that's the talent loss that's, that's profound. And I just, it, it, it saddens me because I saw it firsthand in my time. And it continues. And, you know, obviously you've seen it and we've got to be lifting those individuals up and those stories up because we've got to get people to pay attention. And I always tell my students and colleagues, it starts with the boards. The yep. governing boards also need to be more diverse, equitable, Absolutely. and inclusive. Absolutely. And they need to hold the CEO and the senior leadership team accountable to that too. If they don't look like the community they serve, they're going to lead and govern in the same old way that they've governed for too long and they've got to be looked at too. And it's got to happen really, really quick. Yeah. And I, I also, you know, to that point of the senior boards, I still don't understand why staff nurses, staff physicians also are not a part of the senior boards of these hospital organizations, like across everywhere. Right. Yeah. makes no sense. Why only have your CEOs, your CNOs, your operating officers, people from these banks, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> who like already have a lot of money, right? You need to have people that are in the community also serve and perhaps be at the table with people, not just on a separate committee or council, yeah. but actually have a seat at the table during these important discussions on how the healthcare system is running. Yep, you're right. I mean, talk about patient safety, which every board always needs to be focused on. Yet, you know, there are so many boards that have no nurses uh, at all. You know, there, there may be some yeah. that have a retired nurse, but I mean, you know, you're right. I mean, take, take the general structure, the general structure of a board. The president of medical staff is almost always on it. Mm-hmm. Well, why isn't there a president of the nursing staff? Right. You know, Absolutely. who also is there, you know, and, and, and I had this argument even in, in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. We have a physician general. We don't right. have a nursing, yeah. you know, a nursing, um, you know, general or whatever, you know, whatever it is. And we should. We should. Um, because you know what? I love Dr. Levine. Dr. Levine did a phenomenal job. Dr. Levine is an inclusive leader, but, but I believe she would even argue um, that you still should have a nurse at the table. And even if your secretary of health is a nurse, that doesn't matter. You know what? Because they're focused on public health. You've got to have a nurse at the table that reports right to the governor, just like the physician general has a dotted line. And we've got to be so much more inclusive around this. And people really, what I don't think people realize is that Actions like that save lives. Mm-hmm. They save lives. And why we're, why we're still holding back on these old archaic views of governance is, is really sad. And it really is maddening. Yeah. And we've yeah. got to get people to lift up their voices through advocacy, uh, through you know, the power of their voice to make changes happen. I often wonder, to your point there as well, as if, if we were to have a lieutenant governor that was a nurse or perhaps like a nurse, a nurse surgeon general would then nurses be more like in, in certain areas. I'm not talking about like a specific area. I just see this on the news everywhere that 
you know, there are some nurses that are vehemently against vaccines, right? So, but if you had leadership in these in these positions in government and things like that, would then it be a, a different picture today? I think it would. I think yeah, because had, they, they at least would feel that they're listened to and valued yeah. at the same level. You know, I throughout my career, and I think probably you know being the son of a nurse, I'm sure, and and then also having worked for a CEO that was a nurse. When I get any document that refers to medical staff as just physicians, I go bonkers um, because, look, I've you know seen it firsthand as a patient. Uh, I've experienced it as an administrator. The nurses are doing the bulk of the work, um, and and they're the ones that are most respected by the patients all the time. And you know what what out what bothers me a lot, and I I, I hate to say this, but. It's sad that it took a pandemic to realize how vital our healthcare workforce what you know is and, and yeah. was, but particularly our nurses, because the reality of it is is that we should be should have been doing it each and every day. Mm-hmm. And the same issues that we're seeing that have just been raised up during COVID have actually been there for so long. And you know what? We just haven't listened. They've told us, you've all told us, we just haven't done anything about it. We've just stuck to our old ways of you know, we've got to do this, we've got to operate in margin, we've got to have our KPIs, we got to do this. Well, that doesn't work. Deal with it, structure it differently, do right. what's right for the nurse, do what's right for the community, and be more inclusive. Correct. That's said everything right there in like a couple sentences, I think. Goodness. Um, so you also moved on to become an executive director of Harrisburg University of Science and Technology. And I really loved you in this role because I I live in the in the Hershey area. I never knew Harrisburg University had a nursing program, right? Mm-hmm. Until you stepped in and I met you through Penn State. Yeah. And here we are. You were kind of like this person that was like, hey, have you met our nursing program yet? And I was like, I really didn't even know that this was a thing. So your role in this program was really vital, right? Exposing yeah. people to this program. But you also had some really neat relationships with the PA Department of Health, which kind yeah. of like goes along with your comments about Dr. Levine. And you also kind of did a lot of things with the, with the State Department. I feel yeah. like there was something where you got tapped into as well. I forget what it is, and I apologize, but fill me in. Oh, probably the vaccines. So, probably, the, yeah. Yeah. It, yep. So tell me a little bit about that role in terms of how you kind of coalesce with, with the state government and what, what that experience was like for you. Yeah. So, you know, when I, when I joined Harrisburg University, to your point, you know, the nursing program was really just under development. Um, obviously, there were some other healthcare-related programs, health inf- healthcare informatics, pharmaceutical sciences, et cetera, that I was also supporting. But it really was on that idea of both strategy and relationship building. And um, using my experience that I had always been involved with state government, it was clear to me that, you know, similarly to what we talked about with workforce and healthcare, that academics also has a responsibility to be at the table, partnering with government, to always be thinking how we can do better by advancing positive outcomes and, and strategic solutions. And so when COVID um, first hit the Commonwealth, I had obviously already served on, on the uh, Secretary of Health, which at that time was Dr. Levine's Office mm-hmm. of Health Equity Advisory Committee, uh, with other leaders that are from healthcare systems, uh, not-for-profits, academia, uh, con- you know, community-based organizations, et cetera. And you know, our leadership team there collectively said, we've got to do more. And you know, uh, at the time, I believe New York and, and Virginia we're already mobilizing in California, we're mobilizing around this idea of a large team that would represent the Commonwealth or the state to be looking at what inequities were being experienced early on, you know, through COVID. And so uh, the Department of Health 
organize very quickly. They established leadership teams. I was asked, ironically, to lead the 60 and older team um, that was, you know, as, as you know, was getting hit pretty significantly hard uh, early and then throughout the pandemic. Uh, but we were a team that came together weekly, biweekly, monthly, and I mean literally all the time. And we're actually coming up with, you know, firsthand solutions based on what we were hearing from the field and bringing them to the secretary, bringing them to the governor and even the lieutenant governor at the time because the That's lieutenant awesome. governor was asked. And it was a great experience. And so, um, you know, from my vantage point, it was the beauty of a public-private partnership. And then not just at HU with us in the Commonwealth, it was the beauty of a public-private partnership for the entire Commonwealth. And we did so much together. And that was a vital element of my time there. That's awesome. That's, a, that's like so great to hear too, because a lot of times you meet people who kind of take these positions and they don't really do anything with them. Um, the same argument can be true, I think, in, in nursing where you become certified in something, but then you're just, you're just kind of like there, right? You don't actually like do things with it and make it better, where I think you yeah. took the avenue and really kind of exposed what a public-private relationship could be like, as opposed yeah. to always being divided against each other. Yeah, yeah. And I, I was, you know, we is always important to me. And so I, you know, brought faculty with me through that entire process. And um, one was always a nurse, uh, Nancy Mim, who is a dear friend of mine. And, and uh, even though, you know, I'm not full-time at HU, uh, because of my new, getting recruited to where I am now, I'm still working with her in developing some new courses around population health. But Dr. Nancy yes. was with me throughout the process. And, uh, you know, her experience as a nurse and also serving in a leadership role for many years in the New Jersey Department of Health, she was paramount too. She was actually a leader alongside me uh, with, with the rest of uh, about 11 or 12 others. And that's always been important you know, I think it goes back to my healthcare career, uh, where I realized it's a we, you know, it's everything's about the team. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, even in academia, I've always tried to say everything's about the team. Uh, I don't, you know, and, and I always joke, sometimes I would joke with the faculty, I said, I would always say, hey, I'm your administrative assistant, my job is to get you in the, in the door, and they would say no, no, and, but I my view is always, I'm going to trailblaze, but it's trailblazing for the team, trailblaze for outcomes, trailblaze for results. And hopefully trailblaze for the change we all deserve. That's awesome. Yes, I, I remember posts from you about Nancy in terms of public health, social determinants of health. And I think you all were working on a broadband internet inequity like platform, yes. which yes. really sparked my interest just because of some of the work I'm doing with my DMP project. Yeah. And like at no better time has this come about. You know, I, I think that it's been needed for forever. And as we learn more from our non-healthcare people, such as computer scientists, AI people, things like that, what this means, uh, I think we're gonna really see that, you know, we have to kind of make it better for people to just not access healthcare information on their cell phones, right? Yeah. You need to have internet and you need to have a computer, things like that, because it just makes it safer and much better for public safety, really. Absolutely. Yeah, in your reference in the AARP study that came out a couple months ago with Drexel, um, and Nancy and I were were part of that. Yeah, really important work. Yeah, I, I I can't wait to see like what that all kind of encompasses towards because yeah. I get excited about it. And I've yeah. been kind of like back and forth between people. Ohio State does a lot of things too for like one particular county that I read about and how they kind of utilize broadband. But it it'll be so interesting to see what this what what this means in the future. Yeah. Well, and if, and if we can get the house to pass the infrastructure package, yes, um, you know, 
without question, Pennsylvania will greatly benefit from, from broadband investment. There's no, just, there's no question of that. I know the governor and his team have been really um, loud from an advocacy end, and, and they know of these issues because, again, we broadband, the digital divide was highly reported throughout COVID, and all many of the recommendations, frankly, of the 65 or so that we provided to the governor, they all spoke to the issues just like this. So I am certain that they've been shared with the Biden-Harris administration from the governor's office. That's awesome. And obviously, Dr. Levine, you know, since she was here and was well aware yeah. of those as well. Yeah, she did such a great job, in, in my opinion, of just communicating so well. And I'm so happy that she's within this next administration to try to help this forward. Absolutely. Yeah. So then you moved on to this new role. Yeah. And Dignity Health Global Education. <laughs> and you were so excited. You're like, I need to talk about this. And I'm like, let's do it. Because I felt like it was something that could be awesome. And then I took a look at the website itself. And I was like, oh, this is great. Like, this is way more than anybody has ever, I think, done before. And you have industry leaders from all over the place, program instructors. Um, this is like online courses that you can take, if, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And also like scholarships to help people get the education they need. So yeah. talk me through this because I'm I, I could be like missing things as well and, and, yeah. and people listening. So what is this exactly? Yeah. So Dignity Health Global Education was uh, founded uh, just under three years ago, and it was founded with the idea actually um, Common Spirit Health, which as you know is one of the largest not-for-profit healthcare systems, is is a major um, partner in, in Dignity Health Global Education. And, uh, and then there's some other partners that are more in the education space. But it was founded on the idea that, um, to an earlier point, which we were talking about, that you know, healthcare education, training, workforce development has always been developed in the education sphere, in many cases by academic partners, around what they think is needed in healthcare, not necessarily what is needed by the clinicians, providers, team members in healthcare that are doing the work. And so the idea here was that we can partner with, you know, national leaders like Duke, uh, Pepperdine, uh, you know, others within the space, American University uh, and, and others, to make sure that we have academic programs at the certificate, at the bachelor's, at the master's level, and in the future, others that are more stackable too, that are specifically, yes, developed by academics, but influenced entirely by healthcare leaders, whether they're current healthcare leaders, retired healthcare leaders, um, you know, you name it. And so that is really the, the foundation of what Dignity Health Global Education does and serves. We are fortunate in that, you know, Common Spirit recently made a decision that um, as part of their commitment, you know, internally, but also externally, that they want to help the nation as we think of healthcare in a very broad view. This is a start. They made a $3 million donation uh, that would help Dignity Health Global Education really look to make healthcare more equitable from the workforce perspective. And so what can we do to help those that are currently in healthcare uh, or even those that aren't currently in healthcare that want to get into healthcare mm -hmm. that have had that barrier, uh, whether it was funding or barrier in terms of other challenges, get into a healthcare program at a very, very significantly reduced cost. So whether that's potentially a full scholarship uh, or a partial scholarship, this idea is that we know whether you're in healthcare or want to be in healthcare, the lifelong learning in healthcare is so critical. And what can we do to make sure that from a diversity and equity and an inclusion manner, 
we are thinking about you. And that's what this scholarship is truly all about. We want to, without question, make sure we have a more equitable healthcare workforce. Not only that looks like the patients that they serve, but also listens to them in the way that those patients expect, hears them in the way that they're expected. And so this will only continue to grow. And obviously Common Spirit is, is making this generous contribution, not just for their internal, but also for external. And so it's truly open to anybody in the United States. Um, and actually even internationally, the certificate programs are open internationally, but, but obviously our focus initially is very much on our United States because we know it's so critical. So is this scholarship, does it have a time frame? Is it like just- So it's 1,000 and, and frankly, you know, the idea is, you know, if, if, if the, you know, all the money would be gone, um, this isn't gonna stop. And so our, our team is, is, you know, working obviously with Common Spirit and others that this scholarship is so important. It's a starting point. And we know, you know, that 1,000 scholarships can go pretty quickly, potentially. Um, and it's easy, you know, individuals fill out the application. The most important part of the application is just to share why they think they should be, uh, why they should receive it. Um, obviously, you know, the key here being uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion, because we do want to not only diversify, but we also want to have a, a more equitable healthcare workforce. And so, you know, we're trying to make this as easy as possible. And we're going to learn a lot through this process already. Uh, there's no doubt, I mean, for the individuals that have already uh, applied and, and been accepted for the different scholarships, their stories are profound. They're, they're powerful. And that's what also going to be the beauty of this experience uh, for us as well, is we're going to learn a lot. And, you know, we strive to be partners in this. You know, we want to, you know, work with healthcare systems, work with government, uh, work with the VA, work with, you know, whomever to help them. And that's really what we're here to do. Yeah. And it seems like, like when, so when you go on the website, which is HTTP DHG.org, it's really easy to just see everything that you can do right then and there. And if you yeah. go into that website and with a backslash of equity slash impact slash scholarship, not a backslash, just a slash across, um, you can literally see the scholarship right there. Yeah. And you can just click on apply now or inquire now. And I assume the yeah. inquire is just like an email that you can kind of reach out to. Yeah. Yeah. And really read all about how demographic demographics shouldn't define destiny. Uh, equity in education helps achieve equity in healthcare. And then your future programs. And I think these future programs like meet the need of people. Like even if you're staying at the bedside, I think that any kind of like financial education is so important because we argue it all the time. But also if you're looking to move forward, I think in terms of your own job or, you know, later in life, you can probably also get like little courses done like one at a time, if I'm not mistaken, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, a couple of examples just to, you know, kind of lean over to your point that you were making there is. So like, for example, I did the certificate in healthcare leadership prior to, prior to being recruited to, to DHGE. And that's a Duke, you know, that's a Duke corporate education program, really strong program. Um, in fact, our certificate in healthcare leadership and certificate in nurse leadership through Duke are two of the most popular. Um, you know, they're, they're pretty quick programs, but the, again, the influence, the, the uh, discipline that comes through the healthcare leaders and, and obviously Duke being Duke mm -hmm. are profound. Um, but it's also programs like, you know, our certificate in innovation in healthcare management, which is through Arizona State University. You know, everyone knows that Arizona State University is, is one of the most innovative institutions in the country. Again, a similar program that has the power, the breadth, and the excitement around what does it mean to do innovative work within healthcare. But 
The one that also excites me is that Mercy, Mercy College Plus, uh, which is a partner within Common Spirit, you could literally, with this scholarship, um, again, from a diversity, equity, and inclusion end, literally get the online, fully accredited uh, CCNE RN to BSN for free uh, wow. with the scholarship. Um, and that's really, really important. Another one that practically, you know, just came out, um, and I mean just, and it's, it's on the website as well, is we uh, worked with Northern Arizona University to create what will be a transformational, and, and to, your, to the earlier discussion that you and I were having early on, MBA in healthcare. And so instead of having an MBA that has a concentration in healthcare, this is going to be an MBA focused exclusively and intently on healthcare. That's and awesome. I've been at the table with, with some of their team already and, and our chief learning experience officer, who's just awesome and amazing from an engagement perspective, um, uh, Kurt Hayes, his team, to your earlier point, they work on what does it mean to deliver online education in a way that reaches students of all types? Yeah. And Kurt and his team have done a phenomenal job. But one of the things that Kurt and I have done already with, with Northern Arizona University is validated and made sure that as they work with the subject matter experts within healthcare, that this is truly for healthcare, and it's been powerful to see. Guess what? That MBA in healthcare is less than twenty thousand dollars full full in total cost. With a scholarship, it goes down significantly to potentially under fifteen thousand or less. And so, wow. again, we want to make sure that education is for all, and that's really what our, our CEO and our leadership team are all about. Is that if we're going to diversify healthcare, we can't have academic programs that are too costly. We also have to have the quality, the reputation, Mm -hmm. and we also have to meet students where they're at. And that means online right now, but it also means online that's effective, not the traditional, hey, go to Canvas, post your thing. This is very, very engaging. I've, as I mentioned, I did a course before I was recruited here. I was, I was transformed. And some of the students that I were along with that were all across the country, we've kept in touch. Um, because you know they're nursing leaders, they're leaders in healthcare, and they're doing incredible work, and that's that's what we got to create. Yeah, and are these courses? So, for instance, the mini MBA in healthcare. So, it's two separate courses I'm looking at right now, which are awesome: the mini MBA in healthcare and the mini MBA in rural healthcare, which is so important right now. Are these like transitional programs to complete a full MBA? Um, they can. They can be absolutely. Awesome. So, individual. Yeah, without question. So. They certainly can be if an individual would like to do it that. What, what we're also finding is that there are some individuals in, you know, in the trajectory of healthcare that aren't as concerned about the degree program, but are, are more concerned about the lifelong learning. And so like the new mini MBA in rural or the mini right. MBA, um, if an individual, just say they have an MBA uh, or they have you know, another master's and they don't want to go and get a full master's, th- this is also a solution for them. But to your earlier point, take someone like me you know, there may be individuals who have an MBA uh, or not an MBA, an MPA, or they may have an MSN, or they may have another, uh, you know, master's program. Because of that new master's in healthcare with NAU, they may want to come back and do that because the, the, the price point. So we yeah. have been deliberate around the idea that we have to have different programs that meet different needs. And that's really the important point here that I was mentioning earlier is that this is never about academics driving the decision. This is about industry driving the decision. And you will see as we launch additional future programs in many other 
spaces within healthcare that you'll continue to see industry drives the solution. Mm-hmm. We drive making sure that it fits the industry need. Absolutely. That's so great. I'm, I'm like, I'm so amazed at this website too, primarily because of the words of free RN to BSN. I can't tell you how many nurses I work with that have, I don't even know, 20, 30 plus years experience who would be great fits in management, leadership, things like that. But the barrier is they have to have a BSN and they don't want to get a BSN because they're 30 years into this and they don't want to pay for it. I don't blame them. So if it was free to them, why wouldn't you do it? Right. And this is like an option for, for people that I know who live in rural areas, who, who have like family, other priorities that this could be a great bridge for them. I can't, Absolutely. I can't <clears throat> Absolutely. And, 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 you know, let's hope that they consider it because here's the other element that's important is that, you know, we're always thinking about what we do differently in those programs. And a good example is we, we just uh, launched a partnership with Mersion, uh, for example, and Mersion, you know, is very focused in the healthcare simulation uh, space, but not just the simulation of, you know, the more practical elements uh, they have those, you know, opportunities too, but they also have simulations in conversations and simulations in crucial conversations. Ooh, uh, last week work. I, you know, had my first demo with them and I literally thought I was in the room with, with my team. Um, and, you know, so as we continue to work on programs like the RN to BSN, um, we will continue to make sure that we also intertwine the importance of simulation. Because yeah. we know that online simulation is such an important element within healthcare today because not everyone can train and retrain and upskill physically because nurses are busy, care team members are busy. Absolutely. And so we're trying to also make sure it's very accessible, it meets them. But yeah, the, the zero out of pocket potential is so significant. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, again, can't thank, you know, Common Spirit and certainly our CEO, Andrew Malley, for really having the, you know, the vision behind that we've got to look at diversity, equity, and inclusion. Yeah. This is one of the reasons I was excited to come uh, you know, to DHG because, you know, as I mentioned earlier, um, academia is such an awesome space, it but is. we've got to change that model. It, yep. And you know, this is an opportunity to help change that model because we're at the table with these awesome institutions that are national. And you know, literally we're having that conversation and say, hey, what, you, know, you may usually charge 60,000 or $80,000 for your master's, not going to happen if you want to partner with us to bring this to healthcare, so, uh, because we've got to meet them where they're at. And it's yeah. got to be for everyone, not just the elite. Yeah. I think of another really important course. I don't know who would offer it or whatever, but speaking in terms of your discussion earlier about nurse innovators, one of the things that I think is either missing or needs to kind of like be more tailored towards perhaps nurses is the concept of entrepreneurship for nurses and the ease of trying to make a business plan yep. and like getting, getting this knowledge because right now it's heavily MBA involved and heavily yep. like business person involved. Yep. Um, whereas I am taking a uh, conference in October at Ohio State because they're offering this like innovation course. I think it's called IDEA. And they're walking you through how to take your innovation to a business plan because that yep. is something that is nowhere in the healthcare education field or you yep. have to pay an exorbitant amount of money for certain like people to teach you it and it kind of gets you nowhere. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Um, and the other part, part of it is to kind of like coalesce this is the idea that I need to pay to be a part of a program to pitch my idea seems excessive. And, yeah. you know, I, I understand that people need to make money, but I don't have, you know, if you're a person like me who does things and invents things and whatever, and other people, 
you don't want to pay money to just pitch yeah. your idea to business people, right? Yeah. You, you do want to hear their their side of it. Yeah. But I think that's such a barrier for people that, you know, like it, it could change in like a heartbeat. I think this is like the greatest platform to probably do that, you know? Oh, yeah. No, and I agree with you. And I'm glad you brought that up. In fact, I, I, uh, I've heard that from others. And, and uh, you know, entrepreneurship, as you know, within healthcare is so, it's such an exciting space. Um, and we need more of it without question. We need it in nursing. Uh, you know, the role of nursepreneurs mm-hmm. is just so awesome to see internationally and, and here as well. And I agree with you. We've got to, again, we traditionally and from a structural end, we've got to continue to help academia mm-hmm. and everyone else that's in this space understand that you can't have barriers. We can't have any types of barriers. We've got to be thinking very differently about every possible way that we structure things. Um, and we've got to learn, you know, from those that are literally on the field doing this. You know, when you're an entrepreneur, you know, many are not, you know, already, you know, raking in millions and billions and all those things. Right. That's great if they are, as long as it's for impact. I just, that's the point I always make. I want to see social impact that's responsible to meet needs of today and the future. Right. But if you're an entrepreneur, you're sometimes you're bootstrapped. You're trying to do your very best, but you've got this awesome idea and you know that if someone can invest in you, that is going to make profound impact. And yeah, we got to make sure there's no barriers and, and we've got to do that collectively within the industry. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it's, it's just one of those things that I, that I keep seeing and uh, it kind of baffles my mind sometimes, or especially the, the, some, some of the organizations that you're going to pitch an idea to, and then they'll just kind of like say, well, if you pitch it and we don't like it, we still keep your idea. And I'm like, well, I'm not going to ever propose an idea because intellectual yeah. property is the number one thing. I, these companies yeah. get it, but they, you know, kind of like, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like an animal trying to, you know, prey on things. Oh, pariahs. Like yeah. Predators. Predators. Yeah, predators. Predatory. There we go. Yeah. Predatory. Yep. <laughs> Morning words. Um, they are predatory with trying to get you to put their idea into their incubator, but yeah. never giving you thanks for it or bring me back on board to it. So yeah, yeah, there, there's so many things that I think that this particular site and um, courses offering could, you know, change for the better of in the future. So I'm so glad yeah. you brought this up. No, absolutely. And, and let me tell you, I was at uh, ASU GSV last week. And uh, one of the um, things that they had at that event, which was really powerful was at the end, you know, within ASU GSV, they take in actually a number of startups. Now, obviously, these are startups in the education technology space, but very, very diverse uh, audiences. But one of the, you know, the winner of a $1 million uh, investment for, for a new startup was an organization called Simba. And, um, you know, female-led startup, awesome work that they're doing in the, um, in, in the mentorship space uh, of college students going into careers. And, you know, to your earlier point, in that circumstance, they didn't have to give up anything. You know, they had an opportunity to literally just kind of pitch yeah. what they were doing. Yeah. And then ultimately, you know, I think they took, I don't know if it was like 200, 300 companies. Um, wow. And then, you know, ultimately one was picked and then there was a second and a third. But I have a dear friend that actually was, was, was within the first uh, 200. He didn't make it, you know, beyond that. But the, the work that's occurring, in this space is so important. And, you know, again, to your earlier point about mentorship, we've got to get healthcare leaders and those who care about the future of healthcare to really also be thinking about how they can not, in in a non-gratis manner, 
advise startups as well. It's not all about money. Oh, yes. Uh, it's about the future. And yeah. I, you know, I'm the type, I advise a number, you know, not again, non gratis. That that's not important to me. The impact is what's important to me. Right. And so we've got to be incredibly thoughtful around that too. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of things happening where you can sign up for courses and things like that. I have a program. I'll have to go through my, my podcast recordings because there is a program where if you're, if you're in business and you're looking for a mentor, there's free mentorship of business owners that are kind of retired and not active in business, but will still give you free mentorship. Yeah. I think it's in my notes somewhere. I'll have to look for it. But um, there's other things that I know a few colleagues of mine are, are trying to start in terms of like these beta programs of nurse entrepreneurship and what it would be like to have some sort of program there where you're mentored for like 12 weeks and then okay. out of that would come a product or something, you know? Yeah. Um, yep. So there's, there's that going on as well, but does it meet the need of social equity? I don't know. It's new, you know, yep. it could, um, yep. but we'll see. So yeah. yeah, yeah. A lot happening. A lot happening. <laughs> well, Jeffrey, is there anything else that you want to mention on this podcast recording? No, obviously the, you know, the only thing I would mention is, is that, you know, again, DHG was, was started with this idea of to be a partner. And so, you know, anyone with in the healthcare space, doesn't matter where you are, whether you're a nurse, uh, whether you're uh, an administrator, uh, whether you're both, you know, we, we really just have the value and love of partnering. And so if, there, if we can ever be of assistance also to customize or create new programs in a collaborative way, don't hesitate. Um, yeah. You know, this, this is truly about helping and transforming the future of healthcare workforce. And we want to obviously do that in an equitable way, but we also want to do that in a very thoughtful way. And that really comes through working hand in hand with our industry uh, partners at all levels of healthcare. That's awesome. Well, Jeffrey, thank you so much for being a part of this podcast. Thanks for reaching out to want to be a part of the podcast. Happy that I'm feeling better now that I can host this again. I look forward to having another episode in the future. Yep, sounds good. Thank you, Nicole, as well.